Jimmy Jelinek, and you are listening to the Naked City Podcast. I'm here with Carl Taro Greenfeld, the author of the new novel Subprimes. It's seven other books. Yeah. And um, prolific writer, Bloomberg Businessweek, Time. You were the editor of Time Asia. Mm-hmm. Playboy, when you get around to finishing stuff that we assigned to you. Years. Years, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent years on a on a, on a Playboy yeah, story. You keep shitting the bed on us. On, on you gotta that. be. They have to be meticulously crafted. It takes time. <laughs> I can appreciate that. The workmanship. The workmanship. You like Jesus? You're a uh, <laughs> Giotto. A Giotto. <laughs> That's what I prefer. It's sculpting. It's not writing when it comes to working for Playboy. So I really like your book, man. Everyone's sort of like comparing it to Steinbeck, which is I think is very obvious because. And a little unfair to me. Yeah, I think it's yeah. sort of hard to be held up to. It's to, like it's like big shoes to fill. I mean, there is bad Steinbeck. There's some Steinbeck like that's not as good as Grapes of Wrath. Right, like, right. Grapes of Wrath is like one of the great American novels. But there's also sort of some crummy Steinbeck. Right. He did some commercial stuff too. I mean, East of Eden. I know there might be some people. Yeah. That, but you know, there's there's some pretty weak stuff. But what I was going to say is that it, uh, did you read the book The Unwinding by George Packer? Yes. Because I love that book. It was great. Yeah, yeah just yeah. in the way that he took the personal stories of people who were being affected by these macroeconomic yeah, trends. Yeah, these sort of, you know, it was, and he was able through the telling of all of these different narratives to talk about what you're getting at. He's showing what's coming based on what's going on in these people's lives and how it's affecting them earlier. And it's almost like the fictionalization companion piece to The Unwinding, which I thought was. But now it's lucky. I think people who have read The Unwinding and then read your book, they'll be like, oh, yeah. Well, it's the logical it's the logical conclusion of, of a lot of the policies that Packer starts that book with, right? We're talking about like, the globalization, breakneck deregulation, privatization of huge sectors of the economy. And the unwinding, he very nimbly shows here, 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 here are the here are the repercussions of that right. in, in present day America, and we can go back and see where all these trends came from, where the subprimes, where my novel starting from is okay. We now live in, we now extrapolate even further with these trends. We now go to what does a totally privatized economy look like? What does a totally deregulated economy like? Let's take the Tea Party or the far right's economic agenda and assume it's been fully implemented. Right. And what does American life look like at that point? So it's sort of it's it's unwinding squared in a sense, and that yeah. we're, we're going even further. You're going all the way down this logical but, conclusion. But, but the point is, a lot of the positions where where the subprime starts is elimination of OSHA, elimination of the FDA, privatization of Social Security, elimination of public education. All these things are actually Republican Party platform positions. Yeah, it's not like what I'm saying is actually crazy or no. Made that's up. why it's frightening. It's like it's these are actual ideas that popular politicians in American society. What espouse. I was wondering is. In your mind's eye, like, when is all this being implemented? You don't say it's the year da-da-da because that gets into science fiction. But in your mind, what what year does this— I started in the present. When I began writing, I began writing in the present with this exaggerated version of my own life, which is the writer character who's sort of the everyman. Yeah. And very quickly in writing his life, I realized, actually, this is—I'm pushing—I'm actually writing about a near future. Right. 
And so I, I just call it near future, but there's a lot of stuff in the present that you can still, right. for one thing, there's still magazines in this near future, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. which, so. which, which is, which it may be anachronistic, but the, uh, uh, so, <laughs> but, but, I'm sorry to say that to a magazine no, editor, yeah, it's fine. It's but, fine. but, but I'm a media executive. That's true. That's true. So you're saying, uh, I traffic and bullshit. Well, and magazine editors don't. Well, I just did an exaggerated <laughs> version. So, yeah, but so I started in the present then quickly realized that the hypertrophied society I'm describing is actually more fun if it's in the near future, yeah. because then I can take more liberties and not have to worry about, wait a second, is he talking about a real place and time? Right. So just so, you know, the eight people that are listening who read, just give a brief. Eight book buyers. Book buyers. <laughs> you mean like the Twitter elevator pitch, just real quick. Imagine the Tea Party platform fully implemented in American society, and how does the average family survive? That's that's pretty good. But as you know, it's not a policy wonkish no, book on any level. All. It's more like it is more like a science fiction dystopia book. But what I'm building is an economic dystopia, right? We have the disease dystopia. There's um, there's so many dystopias. Yeah, the, right? yeah. There there's the hint of the other George. There's like the hint of Saunders in there too, sort of lurking, not to keep right. And I'm, with other people. Well, and I'm trying to have fun with this economic apocalypse as much fun as you can have with an economic apocalypse. Right. You know, it's pretty fun. I mean, to me, you know, the, there is that present day analogy of just like the day-to-day soul-crushing relentlessness of modernity you know it's like shit never stops anymore you know it's with like the internet outrage machine which i love and i participate in and and it what allows you to pro- I mean, the internet outrage machine which forces more of us to pay attention and to scream and to type louder and faster when we're upset but it also somehow allows us to process and let go of things faster so so things that should be filling us with enough moral outrage to actually take to the streets and protest pass quickly because there's another wave coming at us. And I'm thinking in particular today of the totally ridiculous Supreme Court case involving the Affordable Care Act based on this reading of three words in the bill, which on the face of it, ridiculous. And if more people were aware of the absurdity of this case, that this is going to decide the health care of 37 million Americans, they would be upset. But the next thing comes along so quickly that it's immediately forgotten. You're a prolific Facebook ranter, though. You're good. I wouldn't say prolific. I think you're a prolific family photo poster yeah, on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, there's a lot of family <laughs> porn on there. Jimmy uh, is gloriously showing off his 1% status <laughs> on, on Facebook, yeah. relentlessly rubbing our faces. I in. guess so. Those I of us in the 99%, Jimmy, we oh, resent you're it. not 99%. We resent, I've done the math. I did the math. I am in the 99%. Really? Yeah, I did the math. Even in the Palisades? What do you mean even in the Palisades? In the Palisades, I'm definitely in the 99%. Yeah, yeah, you're, are you yeah, kidding? Yeah. I, I mean, comparative. I'm in the underclass in the Palisades. I mean, yeah, in a... In a <laughs> That's a different thing. That's like comparative poverty. Right. No, I don't play that game. I'm willing to say in, in absolute global terms, yeah, I'm in the 1% in, in global terms. But in U.S. economic terms, I'm, I'm among the downtrodden. Right. I mean, one thing that I just sort of knowing your personal— Not knowledge. to be cynical about that. I no, mean, no. I, I'm, I'm saying that in, uh, with tongue firmly in cheek. No, I, I, I know that. Absolutely. You know, knowing your politics a bit, there is the common thread, anger— sarcasm just about the implementation of the Tea Party platform, this like soul-crushing conservatism, but at the same time— And consumerism. And consumerism. But at the same time, there's also this veer towards your anger at the nanny state. Because I remember there was a period when you were posting about your daughter, the amount of math homework she was getting. I did a whole story about that. And, and I saw that it made it into the book. And I was like, oh, and just, I mean, just the well, whole— I did, I did a story, not for your magazine, but for The Atlantic, where I did my daughter's I homework read that. for a I read week. That. It was a funny story. Yeah. And it started with that premise of just, I mean, you're, you're a dad. You can relate to this at some point. You, you just wonder, can I even do my kid's homework? No. Do I still retain the IQ or the well, brain I'm, cells I'm to even do I'm stoned all the time, so it's like, <laughs> it's, I, I can't— It's Okay, well, try in your 
40s getting stoned and doing algebra. Right. That is a nightmare. That is a nightmare. It, it was a nightmare when I was 13. When right. I was 14 and doing algebra, that, at least I had the wherewithal just to give up and not try to do it. <laughs> um, but for my, my kids' generation, and this is the interesting thing, is I find that they're coming to drugs a little later than we did. We may have been one, among the most libertine of Americans yeah, or middle-class yeah. kids, and that we were all getting stoned like in sixth grade and seventh grade. We began that process. Is it because we're more helicopter parents? It's like we know what our children are doing all the time. Or maybe our, kids, maybe our kids look at us stoned and watching basketball and just realize they want no part of that. I think I'm a cautionary tale for my children. Uh, I'm sure I am. I mean, my daughter looks at me like side eyes, like, really? The other day, I didn't go to work on Monday, really, because I didn't, I didn't feel like it. Just like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'll be sick today, which, you know, it happens. Yet the Playboy ship of state didn't veer off course. No, no, no. I could get hit by a, a bus. A degree. And, and, and someone, someone <laughs> could do my job. Steve. Much. Steve. Or, or eight, 18 of, like, uh, a bot could do it, you know. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but but definitely a smart guy in Bangalore could do it. Exactly, you could outsource this fucker. Now I'm just really digging a hole for myself because <laughs> Randall's going to listen to this. We love you, Steve. Um, I could outsource myself. Yeah, it would be awesome if I could outsource myself. If I had a body, a person, yeah, just get hired. If I had a body, like, hello, this is Jimmy. Like, not to do a racist voice, but like. But you're going to do one. Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to do one. But anyway, my Just job, for the record, you're also wearing blackface, which yeah. I, I find really odd. I know. It's, it's more of an L. Jolson Mammy thing. I, I, I find it an odd choice, but it's a podcast. I'm not, wearing, I'm not wearing pants and doing the Buffalo Bills. Well, like, that, that, that shit's tucked in. So you can't even do that joke anymore. <laughs> if no one's listening, you can. Yeah. You're safe. No, exactly. no but to go, to go back to your point, cautionary tale parents. Uh, no, no, so, yeah, so, so anyway, like, I had to finish your fucking book. So, like, I was in, so I was reading your book all day in bed. By the way, one of the few interviewers who will actually take the time to, to read the entire book before I turn up. What's the point doing the interview? I mean, most people don't have that same reservation or scruple. Most people are sort of just, will we'll read the first 20 pages or I'll have someone do like a coverage for them or read the reviews. Assholes. And then, and then do a talk. Not you, not the good one. Right. So, so, so the cautionary tale Then my daughter comes home And she's like Are you gonna go to work? <laughs> and I was like Accusing you know, Yeah like really accusing She's like What are you doing? And I'm like Okay just to affirm My 1% status I was in the guest house I didn't want to bother anybody And she's like You've just been hiding back Like treating me Like I'm some mental patient You were holed up In the Lamborghini Yeah I was, I was Getting a blowjob <laughs> From a hooker It's mountains of blow too Anyway so Yeah so I think We humiliate them And I, and I know that My parents humiliated me But Right and so you were reacting In some sense You were reacting to them I, I never saw my parents Smoke dope Right and, and and so what I was doing was embracing what we saw as a rebellion in our time, which was right. smoking weed and all that stuff when we were kids. That was rebellious. Right. And I think for my daughter's generation, it's rebellion to be a little straighter. Right. Plus, I mean, the way schools are pressuring these kids. Now, my older daughter's in high school now. She goes to the same high school I went to, right, which is weird. Right. And the intense academic pressure these kids are under is just ridiculous. I mean, we, I would never have gotten into college. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's just it's impossible now. So. No. So, but they can also zone out with digital media, you know, like, and the, they cheat and yeah. they, 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 and I think cheating, like academic cheating at the high school level is much more widespread. Well, even than it was. Yeah. For one thing, I think consistently in some point schools are going to figure it out. Kids who are taking classes later in the day, who have an exam later in the day in the same class, like if you have your algebra two oh, exam in fifth period, 
the first and second period kids who have the same exam who sent you screenshots of the of oh. the exam by the by the later period. So I would bet you at some point schools are going to figure out why are kids who have these classes after lunch consistently scoring higher than kids who have the first. Anyway, it's because the first and second period kids are screenshotting everything. And and that's good to know. Just it, the whole cell phone thing in school, like my yeah, it's my, giving you access to it to to yeah. the entire world. I know from, I'm sounding really old, but I, you know what? The, the difference is, I went back to speak to my high school recently, and as a, as a man, as an exalted man of honor. As a, as a, as a, uh, you know, not, not as like I, I live in a van down by the river <laughs> type of thing, but they're smart, man. Yeah. You know, I was talking about media theory and blah, blah, blah. And like, they get it on such an intuitive level. Mm. Do they have any interest in magazines? None. I mean, they have interest in brands themselves. They just have information in content. Like they're all like content creators. They're just mixing it up all day long. Right. Do you think they're aware of format at all? Or they're, they're yes. aware of medium? Yeah, or? I think they're aware of medium. They're aware of format. They're aware of packaging because they're packaging themselves. Hmm. You know, it's like I look at my my niece on Instagram. I hope she's not listening. Like in, in real life, she's like a mute. But like in her Instagram life, she is like pithy and mm -hmm. like packages her ideas You're really right. well. I mean, the Instagram, Tumblr, these kids are building their own magazines constantly. Yeah. Really? My daughter's Tumblr is curated, edited, carefully constructed version of herself that she's publishing right. really constantly and constantly updating and, and she's pulling it together. And you're right. So they're more aware of a personal branding part of this right. uh, than we were. And that we didn't even think about that stuff. And I think, and, and and these are sort of like like a lot of the subtext of this book. I feel like is the outcome of a lot of that behavior. What's the Facebook platform, Tic Tac or Kick 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 Kick? kick uh, uh, I should remember this. Which uh, seems to control all kick media. Talk, it's talk, like the, yeah. the beach. Which turned out there was something else. So I wrote this book, and then I made up the super sort of digital conglomerate that is the equivalent of sort of Google and Facebook combined, right. which becomes a a very important communications medium. Mm -hmm. People are kick talking each other all the time in this book instead of texting or emailing. The same way I made, I began using Ryanville to describe right. these impoverished communities. This was before Ryan, I began writing this book before Ryan was on the ticket with Romney in 2012, right? right. right? And this was because Romney had been put forward as the intellectual of the Republican right. Party, and he had these crazy anti-poverty programs, which would effectively made people more poor, right. like most Republican anti-poverty programs. So one of the funny things when you're writing a book set in the near future is how quickly every second-rate idea you have becomes actually something that's out in the world. Right? Yeah, it's, it's just, it's incredible. I mean, if you sit around long enough, something that you thought about when you were totally high watching sports it becomes a billion-dollar business. That's true. And I think it's just because those people. Do you have a specific? Do you have a specific you're talking about? I, <laughs> Urine water. Yeah, I thought of that one. When I, I don't know. I <laughs> just like what's that stupid one? Saucy, which is like it's Uber for alcohol, basically. Oh, they'll bring you alcohol. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Versus like going to the liquor store. I took an Uber here, by the way. My driver's license has been suspended. Mine's about to be. <laughs> well, we're both Porsche drivers. We're, uh, we're okay. both Porsche drivers. All right, we've been outed. We've <laughs> all Mister Ninety Nine fucking percent with your you, Porsche. But yeah, but you have a you have a uh, nine. I'm still driving a beat up old 997. Yeah, well, mine was getting into negative equities zone. It was becoming less than I owed to the bank. So I, I rolled it down. To That's smart. That's downtown. smart. Well, the insurance also, they jack you on. But your new one must have a nice insurance premium. Yeah, and, but, but I got 2.9% <laughs> financing at downtown LA Porsche. Yeah, yeah, well, I got my license suspended for, for a reckless driving incident. So I've been uh, Ubering around. Oh, that's cool. What did you do? It's what they call a wet reckless. Just, I'm, I'm, not proud. Us, I'm not proud. I'm not proud. Tell the story. It's it basically a plea bargain down DUI. I don't want to actually say what happened because it may go against 
the version of events that I've had to publicly spell out. In, oh, in, in, the, in, the uh, legal constructor through, through my attorney. Through, yeah, yeah, the legal version of events versus what happened. But anyway, I was naughty, and I'm paying the price. <laughs> Is that what you told your kids? <laughs> Daddy did a bad thing. He's a good person. He's a good person, but, but he did sometimes a bad thing. he spends the night in jail. Oh, did you go like, to the clink? Yeah, I went to the county. I was in the county sheriff's from like 1130 till 4. Were you in like the holding? Like this no, no, they just put me in like a cell. With oh, like, so you were in like scary jail. No, no, you, no. Were, were, I did have to rape two people you were, while I was there. You were in like white people. I had though. to make a statement. I, I raped two, yeah. two guys while I was there. It's like, like, I, I'm going to cut that bitch. <laughs> you got, hey, you know, it's punk or be punk. <laughs> so four and a half hours in jail. I raped two people, got out, took an Uber home. What did your wife say? Was she like not surprised or was she fuming angry? Yeah, that's not a pleasant, it's not a pleasant well, cause morning. Because both are awful. Oh, I mean, if she was, if she was, if she, if she genuinely wasn't surprised, surprised, you're like, you know, I've been waiting for this or, you know, versus like, if she's really angry, she's going to get over it. I think she was angry, but primarily it was, it was confirmation in her mind that I was actually as stupid as she thought I was. Yeah, but I don't, they know that already. I mean, yeah, but every once in a while you do something that's so obviously and flagrantly because I, I got enough, I haven't had the best week mentally, you know, it's just like, I've just been in one of those places where it's just like the fog crept, crept in and I want to be left alone to sulk in blissful depression. And I was explaining that to my wife last night and I was like, I just told you I've had a bad week and like, you know, this about me. I am a crazy person. How many times do we have to go over the fact that I'm crazy and I'm going to do crazy things? I do that too, but it's also just not an excuse because it's sort of like saying I'm special and, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, and I could see how like my wife would call bullshit on that because yeah. like, I, like, I sometimes I do the my version of that is I'm a writer yeah, and yeah. I'm going through a tough creative period I try and, that too. and it's and it's and it is stressful when you're trying to finish a book or do something it is stressful but you're a father and a parent and so you have like to show up you have to show yeah, up and, yeah. and I should backtrack and say I'm not making light in any way of my recent legal problems <laughs> and that and that nobody was hurt nobody right. was injured and I was unlucky but also what I did was also wrong like it's wrong to imbibe alcohol and drive. Yeah. And so, so I'm not condoning, you know, that, and, and I made a mistake, but yeah, it, 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 <laughs> in, in, in terms of what my kids, I love you walking it back. This is great. I'm not walking it back. I thought I sounded a little bit flippant and I'm not flippant because I know that this was a mistake. You have to learn my, my drunk driving technique though. It's called racing your drunk home. Cause you have that 45 minute window of gloaming. Right. And your blood alcohol level is rising. So if you can get home before yeah, yeah. and you still have, well, that was my defense. Oh, oh, that uh, you're rising BAC. Oh, oh, that you're in the gloaming period. Yes, because that's yeah, that like one. my technique to get from West Hollywood back to Santa Monica. Well, actually, as long as I make it to the Burger King on Pico, where all the shootings are, I'm golden. Well, don't go on. I mean, my mistake was I was on PCH, which is a big mistake. Well, now I have to go. In. I guess I could take seventh all the way. Now we're being yeah, just avoid, avoid PCH because that's county sheriff's department. And they really have. I mean, first of all, one among the things you learn when you're in the system on this is 25 percent of everyone driving after 11 p.m. is legally drunk. Twenty five percent. Wow. Right. So it's and the other 70 percent are stoned here in California. You probably. Right. Yeah, probably. So it's pretty common. It's a bit of bad luck, but certainly it doesn't raise my standing in my daughter's eyes. No, to go no, back to yeah, what we were talking to go about. Back to original point. You know, so yeah, so I think that's yet another thing. Aware of the fact that you spent a night in the clink. Yeah, well, I guess she's she's in high school. Yeah, yeah. And I told him I was a complete idiot. I made a terrible mistake. And sometimes I'm a lousy person. Yeah, I'm not one of those guys like, Daddy was away on a business trip. It's like, well, what? Yeah. I have a, a friend of mine, a girl I went to high school with. She lives in New York and her husband was indicted in a major Ponzi scheme. He was a, a guy who ran hedge funds, but it wasn't really a hedge fund. It turned out he was just taking people's money and spending right. it. Everyone's money, the kids' teachers' money. You know, oh, they're, I mean, one of these things, he was bad. bilking everyone. Was he the basis for Arthur? <laughs> this is more recent. This oh, was okay. last year. So he ended up in the slammer. And the wife told the kids, they were still young. 
young enough where she could get away with telling him, dad's on a long business trip. And then apparently at one year, she was back in town at Christmas and I saw her and her, her kids and, and family. And I, out loud, I said, is so-and-so still in the slammer? I just said that, but mistakenly, I said it in front of the kids. Right. And if this was what let the cat out of the bag that she had to admit to her children that, 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 they're, that they're, Santa Claus is a punk. Yeah, that their husband is on a multi-year business trip. He's actually in jail right. for defrauding all of their friends. Did she stay with him? No, 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 she didn't. But it's hard to imagine your kids. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Keeping it from your kids. Yeah. No, no, they didn't. They didn't stay together. The Ponzi scheme thing usually ends in divorce. Has, that hasn't been my experience. Oh, really? Oh, so you know more. <laughs> I, I, the Ponzi schemes I've run have actually oh, stre- oh. they really strengthened strength- my marriage. Well, yeah. Well, yours, it's, it's a bond. It's well, a bond my yours, wife and I share. Yours are successful. <laughs> um. So you've done a lot of press for this. I mean, obviously, this is the most important press that you've done. But I saw you. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, did you do Terry Gross and like NPR? No, no. I'm trying to get my publicist to get me because the book's topical, but it's not fiction. And that's the holy grail. Everybody oh, for loves a book. Yeah. When I've been on NPR to sell a book, the book just oh, spikes, you, can, you watch right? the numbers on Amazon. Just, just is that because people actually upward. read who are, who are on NPR? Yeah, I guess because a hundred thousand people in America who actually read are listening to NPR, yeah. and then. And, and tend to buy the books that are on. I find it so soothing. You know, Jerry- it, the predictability of it sometimes irks me. The, the sort of knee jerk left centricism of NPR. Yeah. And then, I mean, here's why I, I admire Fox News. And yeah. I, I love Fox News on one level, which, is, which is they are shameless and relentless about making their case. They don't even have any pretense of balance, right? Whereas NPR, with this sort of laborious balancing that they're trying yeah, to yeah, do, yeah, yeah. you know, President Obama's, you know, speaks out against Supreme Court case. However, Republicans, you know, claim, you know, they're, they're always doing this fake fluttering balance thing, which I think waters down. It's like the press in England. It takes sides. It, you know, yeah, it, I like that because I, I don't because balance itself is a side. You're just on the side of balance. Then you're not on the left. It's on the, just neutral. It's you know, a, yeah, take it, a point. My favorite thing recently. One that, of the things I always like about Playboy is that Playboy has always been willing to take political stance. Yeah. Well, I mean, just by the course of what we publish, we have to. Well, because it started as a political statement, despite the fact that it was naked women. Yeah, just, you know, like— It's a free speech. Yeah, yeah. it starts as a free speech. Titties are immediately politicized. They were. I don't think they are anymore. They still are a little bit. It's amazing, not in a a governmental sense, but in—people still get uptight about that shit. Like Ford. Well, I don't want to, like, talk shit about advertisers. But anyway, (laughs) fuck you, Ford. (laughs) This, yeah. this podcast is sponsored by Fiat Chrysler, who does not hate titties. Um, but, you know, Fox, what I thought was genius is the way they work the format. It's way more entertaining. But the, mean, the, the curfew clock during the Baltimore riots, <laughs> it was like a countdown to mayhem. And I was like, whoever came up with that is a fucking genius. I mean, that is like— Well, they, they, Fox has figured out that there's no repercussions for taking strong positions and for being blatantly wrong. Right. And they realize there's no repercussions for it. So why are we worried about any pretense of balance? Which is what makes it more entertaining television. I mean, if you're forced to watch Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Fox is way more entertaining. The problem is there's no competing entity that has the scale no. and entertainment quality that no. exists with Fox. No. So like, it has the personalities. No. So well, my, and that's the point. That's one of the points yeah, of yeah. the book is that that's the jumping off point of the subprimes is, is if we now live in a world where there is no countervailing force to global capitalism. Right. right. Traditionally, there's always been something right, whether it was socialism, communism 
Berlin. But with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the last countervailing force to capitalism was eradicated. So we are living in an era, which I guess started in the 90s and is continuing, of just you know unleashed global capitalism. Yeah. So until there's some countervailing force that emerges, whether it's another an, an economic system or religion, whatever it is, then we're going to continue to live in this sort of degraded but environment. But people know. I mean, even the banks know. Like, I was reading somewhere, like, there was a USB— UBS. Uh, UBS, sorry. USB is a port. Uh, there was a UBS report, like, their big State of the Union analysis, and it was talking about the biggest threat to growth is inequality. And— not from like a distribution. Yeah, but it's but 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 we saw with Occupy is that we don't have an economic system right. that that these oppressed are able to embrace yeah. use to push back against capitalism. Like even the Occupy people, I mean, some of them, if you ask them, would say that they're capitalists. Right. They just favor a more equitable and more more European style of capitalism. Right. And so I think that's really the issue here is that until there's some force powerful enough to push back, you're going to have this rapacious private sector that's just going to sit on society, and we all live under. We all live under its ass. And it won't stop either. I mean, it's just... No, the environment. The environment's the only thing that can really be a countervailing force, right? Yeah. Is that if the world itself starts failing massively. In your mind, how soon is that? Like, how soon are, like, the, the coyotes going to... I mean, they're already in my yard, but, right. like, how well, soon... How they, soon until, they, until the coyotes actually realize they can just start eating us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because we're, we're soft and fat. Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not mm. fit to fight we're, them. We're yeah. delicious. At some point, yeah, they'll get a taste of human and, and realize this is good. That'll be the end of it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that's the question because the we're already seeing it in some parts of the world, right? Bangladesh, all these places are flooding, but they've always those places always seem to have been problematic areas anyway. So it doesn't alarm us, right? I think, America, I, I think when Santa Monica Canyon actually floods, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when when the oceans just go all the way up West Channel and engulf your house, that's when I'll know that it might be time to act. When Larry Ellison can't eat on the deck of Nobu because it's underwater, <laughs> like like shit's gonna then, change. Then Larry Ellison, man. yeah, then Larry Ellison will realize he has to build a little further up in the hills. I mean, that's what I found. So, I mean, that the other thing that was so interesting were like was this idea of the Uber 1% living in this pod world and the fact that they had their escape, you know, they had their escape islands and stuff. And if, you know, if you see a firsthand vision of that, it already exists in that sort of like Teterboro global net jet world where people travel from SUV to private jet to mm -hmm. Aspen. Like you literally. Yeah, the Davos, Aspen. Yeah, you don't have to. Art Basel. Yeah, all, all these. There's already that completely segregated elite, which we sort of accept because we see that our society somehow as a meritocracy. Yeah. Right. So Obama being the perfect expression of that meritocracy, right? Harvard Law and so forth, obviously an A student. And so any product of the meritocracy, we feel like, okay, then they're entitled to have that. Yeah. They're entitled to everything they get. But, it, but which would, that's Piketty's point is that you're basically just creating though a Thomas new, Piketty for all of our readers, economist and theorist of the endemic and structural nature of wealth inequality. That's one of his points is that okay, even if these people come up through a meritocracy, at this point, relative to the rest of the world, they're wealthier than the robber barons of 19th century England right. and America, were wealthier than the, than the Bourbons were in the 18th century. That we've created a class of people who are transcendently wealthy and, and are creating a lineage. Of wealth, that how is that different than an aristocracy? And that's Absolutely. the point. And since we live in a society where there is no estate tax, effectively, you know that this wealth will be passed on. Yeah, I mean, it'll go down generations again. I mean, this is yeah. the next Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. Which way do you think Obama will go? Do you think he'll go back to being a community organizer, or do you think he'll just become Davos man and just like rake in the bills? 
I think he's had one eye on his post-presidency career since his first term. Right. I think he can't help but figure out like what is the rest of his career going to be. I think Clinton has shown there's no reason to ever fly commercial again <laughs> once you've been I love POTUS. Bill. I love Bill Clinton. Everyone does now, but whatever those speaking fees— There's such dirty money sloshing well, around. Well, and it seems there. like for a few million and, and access to a private jet, you can get him to do anything. Yeah, yeah. Right? You can get him to do absolutely anything. You can get him to show us Dong and Playboy. People are like, <laughs> yeah, if you fly him to Aspen— We'll and, send you a G4 <laughs> and we'll write a check for— Okay, Bill Clinton, we'll send a G4 for you and— uh, Four million? To, four, to four the mil uh, Clinton Global Initiative um, for you and Chelsea. No, I'm sorry. That's that's too far. No, I mean, the difference is, and I, I think the idea of a black president, which was inconceivable 12 yeah. years ago, is a reality. And I think sometimes we forget that just becoming president makes Obama one of the most amazing and transformative figures in American history. Just becoming president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't even have to do anything once he became president. Just the fact that a black guy became president is so astonishing and so mind-blowing and was so inconceivable. That just puts him on Mount Rushmore right, right there. But I, I don't know how you'd sculpt that. Yeah. So I think that now, eight years in or seven years in, we're able to say, oh, he was disappointing here and he didn't do this. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. But like, whoa, we had a black president. And that was before a Jewish president. We may never have a Jewish president. I don't president. think we'll ever have a we'll Jewish president. president. <laughs> That's too much. It's, That'd be it's, too It's just... <laughs> Anti-Semitism is is it's still so it's still slightly a lot. I'm Jew. I'm saying this. this to, we're both Jew. We're, we're both, both Jewish. Yeah. You're the most fascinating mix. Jewish, Japanese. Is there some German in there too? No, my wife's German. Okay, but yeah. it's Carl with a K. That's true. Yeah, that was because my parents, who are not Marxist, thought they would go with the more international spelling oh, okay. of Karl, based on Karl Marx being at that point the most famous Karl right. in history. Probably still is. Right. Him and Karl Lagerfeld. That's a Karl with a K. Yeah, that's true. Karl Malone. Carl Malone. That was that a Carl the case? He's probably more famous. You're, actually. In a, you're in a great triptych of, of people. <laughs> so let's go back. You, where did you grow up? In Pacific Palisades. Born in Japan and spent my formative years in, in Pacific Palisades, California, where I live now. Right. And But when I grew up in a town, Pacific Palisades back then was a, a much more middle class right. place than it became. Right. If you were rich then, you lived in Westwood okay. or Beverly Hills. Right. You didn't live in, in the Palisades too far. That's, so the Palisades Village was just like this small town. Yeah, it was a cute little town. It still is a cute little yeah, town. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's what that's its big selling point is that it feels a little different than L.A. despite being mired in all the same crap as the rest yeah, of I L.A. Like it up there. And so, so, so you grew up there. You went. To, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. Oh, that's right. Okay. You grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. It's like it's specifically designed for you to want to leave and never come back, which I think is like should be the point of, of everybody's formative. The, the, the suburbs were pretty much designed that way. Yeah. I mean, I literally grew up where John Hughes movies were filmed and like and I was the anthem. Oh, OK. Wasn't was, that the town Hemingway? Wasn't, wasn't Hemingway from that? Town? No, he was from he was from some he was from Michigan, I thought. Oh, yeah. Nick Adams. You're thinking of. What's the town I'm thinking of? No, there's a guy. Uh, no, no, no. What's his name? Who was in Nebraska? The, Bruce Dern. Yeah. You probably weren't thinking of Bruce Dern. I wasn't thinking of Bruce Dern. Bruce no. Dern is from where I come from. Okay. Yeah, I don't get Hemingway and Bruce Dern. No, I mean, there, there's, uh, what's his name? Uh, he was great in that. Yeah, he yeah. was great. John Hughes. Anyway. Uh, yes, yeah, so I grew up in Pacific Palisades and then went to college back east. Well, you went to like a girl's school. Yeah, Sarah Lawrence College. Were you like the only straight male there? One of a few. Yeah, that was a, a big advantage. Um, plus, they accepted me. 
Right. That was, that was I didn't have the best grades. Yeah, that's a good school. And I, I think it's a pretty high acceptance rate if you're male and my dad was paying full freight. Oh, okay. So I, I think if the check clears at that point, I think it's probably harder now, like everything probably is, but at that point, but it was a good school for me. It was close to New York. Main, the main thing I wanted to do is just be close to New York City. Right. Because growing up in L.A., I realized I had to get out of L.A. and, and, and get back east. We're, we're culture with a capital. Were you one of those people? Okay. Like I know a lot of people who grow up in New York leave New York and never come back. And then there's a lot of people in L.A. who leave L.A. And never come back. And there's a lot of people who live in LA and never leave LA. Right. But um, did you live in, I mean, you lived all over those three three kinds of people. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Or at least the people that I know. I'm just just segmenting myself into into like a really small world here. Yeah, you just sound like the most rarefied. Yeah, I'm such an asshole. uh, I told Randall yesterday that my back hurt because I was was draining my koi pond. And um, he's like, that is just. What did you do with the koi? I gave him while the, you're draining. I gave him to my neighbor because Emily wanted to put like permaculture. So I, I got to stop. Anyway, he was making. What did you do with the water? Uh, I poured it on plants. Okay, good. No, it was. That's reused. the right answer. Yeah, I, yeah I didn't yeah. like put it in the gutter. No, like I, I have neighbors, and we, we're going through a terrible drought out here, as most of the rest yeah. of the country probably has heard. And and I, my neighbors, even after it rains like all day, there's sprinklers, there's sprinklers right. come on like at you know that night. Emily's like, like, a sprinkler Nazi. Like she'll me she, too. She I mean, she's one on the wrong day. She's like, there's a drought. No, and also I mean I don't, I don't understand. Like, look, it sucks trying to figure out how to operate your sprinkler timer. It sucks. Yeah. Everyone hates it. I hate it. I had to go out there and spend like a half hour with you know with my gardener trying to figure out how to operate the sprinkler timer. But you just figure it out. But like the fact that they can't even be bothered to figure this right. out in the midst of a drought is like, well, this is my point about the environment. At some point, like, I mean, is it literally going to take turning on a tap and having no water to coming out yes. for, for my neighbor to think, hmm, maybe I should yes. figure out my sprinkler timer? I think, it'll, it's gonna, I think it will be at the point where shit's too late when people wake up to the fact that there's a problem. Yeah, because that's the only way that, you know, it's right. So in that case, we're basically screwed like uh, this, our our way of living. Right. And if you read, do you ever read Bill McKibben? Do you read like, you know, he's very stark. And he says the way we live, taking huge jets around and driving in cars and eating tons of red meat, all the things we like to do. Right. Eating whatever we want, whenever we want. Having not even thinking about where it's flown in from, how much grain and water right. and shit it took to raise all that stuff. That way of living is so fossil fuel dependent that if we are got real about our consumption and what it sort of how much carbon it's creating, it's totally unsustainable, right? And then he gives us his version of, of what life will have to be like without right. all that stuff, where we're on bicycles and we can't fly to New York and we can't do any of the stuff we were a lot like of stuff living we in to, Holland. Yeah, but without the without the red meat. Right. And 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 so, you know, one, one of the things I think is that we can't really accept what life would be like if we actually tried to wean ourselves from heavy fossil See, fuel I dependency. Think it's, I think it's too late. You know, I sort of subscribe to the adaptation theory. But you have kids. I mean, I, look, I would be happy to sort of dance on the edge if I didn't have kids. But kids invest you in right. caring about this future in a way. But that, that's why I'm part of it's like it's time to build the ramparts. It's almost like we need to like find shelter the storms are coming like we have destroyed the earth so much and no matter what we tell people they're still going to act like fucking idiots right and so you go with that's like the sanctuary concept in my book in my novel all the super wealthy yeah. are, are, are sort of buying you know buying or preparing sanctuary does that island. make me bad well, it's not really a plan. It's sort of it's sort of like no. I'll build a bunker basically you're the equivalent of a guy building a bomb a bombshell bunker no but i want to build a bunker for everybody <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> you know, it's, okay. I, I don't want it just for right. me. I mean, like, like it's like a Coke commercial for you. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I I'd like to buy. The yeah, book. I mean, I, no, no, I, it wouldn't just be my bunker. It would be everybody's bunker. It'd be very expensive. We're talking about the most costly public work projects in the in the history of right. Mankind. So you're doing, you're putting putting a bubble over, like, yeah, but, who, yeah. but who gets the bubble? All in North America. I don't know. I mean, I've got to figure that out. I'm, I'm, look, I, I, I haven't thought through this theory. <laughs> All right. It's not you haven't you haven't actually no, no, drawn haven't, up the blueprint. I haven't I haven't like stress tested this intellectually, Carl. It's just like I, I don't. It's like well, I think that's a different version of resignation. I mean, because because I would be resigned to it. And, I, and and truthfully, until I began writing this novel, I didn't think that deeply about politics. I had my political opinions, yeah. obviously, and and I knew I was left to center. But I hadn't really thought about how angry I was about how fucked up civilization was becoming because of rampant greed and capitalism. Yeah. And I think that, like I said, I'd be perfectly happy not bemoaning this sad condition if I didn't have kids and if that didn't invest me in the future of mankind. But once you have kids, you're fucked. You were brought in. And so— you can say I want to build a bunker. I want to do another, but you know, you know what? Like you're now on for the ride. You know, you you your bloodline will. Like I said, will, I haven't thought this. Through. Your bloodline will go down with the ship of mankind. Yeah. And that's sad. I feel bad about that. Do you I, think I, it's I like our, my daughter. I mean, do you think it's that fast? It's it's in our lifetime. The locusts are coming. No, I don't think it's our lifetime. We're old fucks, so we're, we're going to be okay. But I, I think in our daughter's lifetimes, there are going to be massive lifestyle changes, and, and you know, in in terms of what the human experience is, that aren't going to be pleasant. And that's where I think we're going to see tremendous societal disruption at that point, because that's when I think. This Tea Party shit will rear its head in reflex against what has to be done. You know, the the the, the, the people that are like, we got to stop this. And well, then, you could argue we're seeing massive societal conflict, in, you know, in, in different parts of the world now. Yeah, that's true. Right, we're seeing huge changes. I mean, whatever's going on in terms of Islam, yeah, is representing some massive response to resource allocation. Yeah. It has to be a fight about resource allocation, right? And and it, which is all cloaked in a certain ideology, but it seems like most you know the extreme ideologies tend to arise when the discussion comes to resources, right? right. I mean, you know, Hitler was obsessed with resource allocation and the whole plan to take over Russia was based on the fact that Germans needed living space and right. so forth. So I, I think you you come up with a radical ideology or crazy ideology as as sort of an umbrella for just a resource grab. Right. And in America, we're immune to that because we control all the resources and right consume now. all the resources. And, well, we have to control yeah. all the resources because we do consume them all, right? I mean, that, where was that thing that if, if everyone in the world lived like Americans, we'd need five or six worlds? The funny thing is, besides you know, besides this book being so prescient, is I hope the, it's not prescient. I mean, that's sort of the point. I hope it's it's just a bleaker version. I hope there's a more benevolent version that can emerge. I hope so. And I know you need to say that because <laughs> you can't agree with the central <laughs> thesis of your book. But I'm just going to go out and say it. We're fucked, man. But the other thing. That Book is also, your podcast is cheery every week. It's maybe it's just today. Uh, <laughs> you know, the other thing, the other person I found really pressing after reading this book was Mike Judge, and I rewatched Idiocracy, and you're like, oh my god, we're we're all first hour of that is yeah, is but great. like we're almost yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then just, well, certainly in, in terms of our presidential politics, yeah. we're totally there. And then also in the and just what you talk, just the ridiculous hyper branding of everything, like the subway, eat fresh, Paul Revere. That's that's the name of it. That's Paul. Paul Revere is the. That's actually the middle school my daughter went attend, to. But in in the novel, I I rechristen it because it's, everything's privatized and charterized. The subway fresh take Paul Revere Middle School. I just to get back to the book again, like the I, the Richie character makes me laugh so much because. Hey, I can relate to it. I'm a fuck up. Uh, I, I, I smoke a lot of dope. 
And I just like how industrialized and legal it is in the book. And obviously, it's like a version of yourself, but you're not a fuck up. I mean, that, you know, that much in, in comparison no, no, to most I, no, people. I, I, no, I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not a fuck up. But, but the Richie character was. He's not really a fuck up either. No, no, he's successful in his way. I yeah. mean, in as much as any writer. I love that he keeps getting work because he's being sued. I mean, that's. Well, I think at that point, I was getting sued. So I did, I was, I was very aware of that. I wasn't getting sued. That's, that's not true. I wasn't getting sued, but I was, there was, somebody was mad about a story I'd written. And then I realized at that point, if this person actually sued the company and me, my my interests were then inextricably aligned with this corporate, this media corporation. Right, because if they laid you off, it. it would be a yeah. uh, it'd be a tacit admission of right. So, so ironically, I realized that one of the surest ways to stay employed at any media conglomerate is to get sued. I gotta, that's a, that is a great is to get sued and become a co-defendant along with said media conglomerate, <laughs> and that will assure you job security. So that was that character's sort of survival strategy. I think that's great. But one of the things I love about Richie is, and again, this this is it goes back to your sort of this retro desire of yours to, you know, there is the progressive streak in your book, but then there's also the anger at the nanny state, you know, which can be, a, that's also a knee jerk response to like the tr yeah. trigger warning progressivism run amok in, in this yeah, country. I don't, I, too. See, I, I don't know. That's, that's, that's an interesting point. I'm not sure that I entirely successfully meld those two concept because the father, the, you know, the Richie character is, is sort of bemoaning the fact that like, there's just no kids playing on the street anymore. Right. Every kid is so helicoptered and everything is so overprotective. And, and I'm not sure in a totally deregulated economy, that's necessarily the outcome. No, but, I think but, the other outcome is that it would be, would be latchkey kids, yeah. which is kind of the way we grew up. Were you, or you just deposit your kid somewhere yeah. and assume that this privatized daycare chain? Were you a feral child who who, who roamed the 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 streets? We, we all were. I mean, we we all yeah. were to some extent. I mean, that's the interesting thing. We were, you know, we we were we had much more freedom after school and so on than than kids seem to today. So we were allowed to. We we were largely gone, you know, most of the day until until you had to come home for dinner. And you knew enough that, like, if a weirdo pulled up in a van, like, don't get in that. No, I always get always get in the van. Always if there's, get if in there's the one van. lesson I want to make sure you're listening to is that when a weirdo pulls up in a van, always get in because it's, you never know how wonderful it's, the experience it's going. is going to be. It's like the different strokes uh, uh, bike episode. It's no, like I, I always think, go in the basement of the bike store owner. Yeah. Wow, we're just linking shit together. But that gets me. No, here's, but, here's, but here's the difference. Here's the difference. When I was, I mean, I think we were, as a kid, I, I was a pretty well off kid, you know, upper middle class, right. whatever. As were most of my friends, probably. I, I didn't think that much about it, but but we were straight up more somehow criminal. I feel like than kids are now in terms of like it was understood in in Pacific Palisades that if you left your bike unlocked in front of the Bay Pharmacy, you it was understood it was going to be stolen. Right. You knew that by the time you got out with your snow cone or whatever, your bike was gone. But you'd see it around like whoever the local tough was would be. Yeah, but good luck getting it back from him. Oh right, right. I mean, it was sort of it was much more Lord of the Flies in terms of it was the community of children was self regulating and pretty brutal. And kids rip kids off all the time then. Right. I mean, kids were robbing kids. I mean, it was so and, and these are pretty well off kids. So I don't. And so but I mean, you're looking at it kind of fondly. You're like, oh, I wish there was this. No, no, no. This it Darwinian was, it was, struggle it, for my children. It was terrible. I mean, I was terrified in sort of eighth grade. You know, there, there were kids who terrified me or, or, you know, you get ripped off in some, you know, buying pot or whatever. Some and some kid bigger kid yeah. would just grab it and like you couldn't get it from him because he was tougher and bigger than you. And so, so there was a little bit of a prison yard thing that wasn't pleasant about it. But I think that would give pause to anyone in a van. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they weren't going to stop and pick up because they would just get a rock in their face. Right, exactly. You know, so so I think that so so I, I think we weren't worried about child molesters. I think child molesters were a little scared of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
That's yeah, always good in the van. <laughs> I love the scene when Richie's playing uh, tackle football with his son because, like, it's so weird. You know, it's, it's, it was so fun when you were kids. Right? It, was, no. it was so fun when you were kids, but, like, if I was a parent and I drove by and there was, like, and I didn't know the context of what was happening, and there was just some, like, older dude playing tackle football <laughs> with, with a bunch of boys. With a bunch of boys. Like, I would just assume that that dude was, like, about to do some raping or but something. Did, but didn't you, I mean, I remember as a kid playing tackle football with like, and then like somebody's dad would come home and they would, you know, play, they would play with us too. Never. Never? Never. No one's father ever played tackle but football. What about Thanksgiving? What about Thanksgiving? I, I was a Jew. We didn't have, yeah. we just, we, there, was, there was no drinking and touch football and suicide in our, in our house, which is a lot of passive aggressive. Thanksgiving anger. was like the rest of the year. Yeah. Holocaust Remembrance Day. Exactly. <laughs> no, we, so I, I remember playing tackle football with like, with, right. with dads when I was a kid. Maybe, I mean, and not being molested. Right. Maybe, maybe I've repressed that. This is a strong theme of mine. Maybe I need to go back to to therapy. Are you doing a book tour for this? This is it. I mean, this. So you're not leaving the state, really. This you're, is. You're I was in New York. I was in, I was in New York. I was in New York last week. I'm fascinated by like the book tour. Like, I, like when my first book came out, they sent me to like you know 12 cities with media escorts in every city. I mean, they used to they used to really do it. They used yeah. to you know, but now for that you have to. Now that's really big. You know, only only sort of people. You know, say they they didn't pay me enough money to make me go and do all. You that know the stuff. writer. You you know AJ Bame. Who writes? He, he was on staff here for a while. He was executive editor. What, how do you say his name again? AJ Bame. Yeah, I'm familiar. He with wrote him, yeah. "Go Like Hell," and then he wrote "Arsenal of Democracy." Now he's writing a book about Truman. Like this is the last guy I think to be AJ. I'm name checking you, but those history books do so well because yeah. like, just like like the like the sort of fat white men that that used to watch like you know War Above Germany. Oh, war books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, find a battle. Yeah. So he so this book is just going gangbusters, and he's being he's like. On June 2nd, I'll be in the Whitehall, Michigan, VFW, uh, talking about. So, I mean, would like to used to like just like a rock, not like a rock star. I would say like a, like a small band in a van, like crisscross the country for these books. The uh, well, I remember the first, the first, the, the, my first book was Speed Tribes, which was about Japanese youth culture, right? right? And that was sort of that. That book did all right. I mean, it, it may be the reason that they keep letting me do books, right. the fact that that book sort of was okay. And for some reason, that they sent me, you know. All over Washington, Chicago, Minneapolis, Texas, whatever. And uh, for some reason, I was in the same schedule as Betty Friedan. <laughs> right? Feminist Mystique. Feminist yeah. Betty Friedan. She wrote for Playboy, I'm sure. At some yeah, point. Well, we did the Playboy interview with her. Right. So she was a great lady, but she, but it was just fun. I kept showing up at like you know NPR, and I'm waiting, you know, waiting for. And there's Betty. And there's Betty Friedan. And then did I, you guys then, strike up a friendship? We did. And then a TV station. You know, there was some TV station in Baltimore where they interviewed Betty, and then and then me. It was it was pretty funny. So sort of there was like a three or four city overlap where I was getting the Betty Friedan treatment. Who was like, and you had the media escorts. Well, a different media escort would meet you at each city. That's so funny. The resources allocated. Just to think about that now. There's that movie coming out the, with uh, Jesse Eisenberg and one of those Apatow dudes about mm. uh, David Foster Wallace. When they oh, yeah, were, yeah, when yeah. They, right after he released Infinite Jest. It's a movie about a book tour. And I was like, oh, my God. It was, what's his name? The guy from uh, uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, exactly. Jason Siegel. Jason Siegel, yeah. But at its heart, I was like, oh, this looks good. But then part of me is like, no. Like, they've taken a Harper's essay about a book tour and they're turning it into a movie. I mean, movies about writers tend to kind of suck. Yeah. Because the act of writing is actually really boring. Yeah. If someone's sitting at a desk typing. That's why most of them shoot themselves in the face. 
uh, is it the face? Is it actually the face? Yeah. Uh, David Foster Wallace hung himself. Yeah, I guess so. But Hemingway, shotgun in the mouth. Yeah. Hunter, shotgun in the mouth. Again, this, this is just really cheery. Whatever's cheery. handy. Whatever's, whatever's handy. The, but, but, that no, is but that's the, why the entertainment, you know, the, the act of writing is, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's really boring. It's, it's, sitting, it's sitting there by yourself. So, I, you know, I hate like, woe is me. Like, I, I guess like. No, no, it, it beats working in a factory. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm totally aware of how lucky I am that I can do this for a living. But that said, there's nothing glamorous about it. No. And and maybe the book tour, you know, for a successful novelist like David Foster Wallace is about as glamorous from the outside as that might be. No, it, it looked it, awful. It was like in Omaha eating at the yeah. Waffle House. Yeah. Or or the funniest thing is, so they they the, the media escort meets you. And you, you know, drives you to this interview and you get there and the whoever had booked you for this radio show has been fired <laughs> and the new host doesn't have any idea who you are. Or so, so you have to do an interview with someone who's never read the book and before you walked in and uh, to, into the room had never heard of you. And you're only the, the only reason they're doing it is because the station had committed to something right. that that person that, that never bothered to pass on in, in, in her as part of her exit interview. What's what's the weirdest experience you've had on book tour other than becoming friends with like the the godmother of second wave feminism? That was probably it. I, 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 there's nothing glamorous or exciting about it. I'm surprised you're fixated on it. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand what's interesting. I, it's literally getting. It's, no, because it seems so fucking boring. Yeah. Oh, yo, yes. No. No, 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 I, and you're groveling because you're you're basically just yeah, you're you know, trying to convince I, people to put you on the air to, I, I so you can sell your book. Yeah, I don't think it's interesting at all. It, from a like, wow, that seems like a lot of fun. I think it's interesting from like someone whose mind works quickly, like mine or yours. Yeah, like just like the stultifying Ugh. aspect of checking into like your generic Marriott Crappy courtyard, hotel. like yeah. just like internet porn, eating board. I mean, that might've been before you probably you had to carry your own porn with you. Yeah. Or watch Spank your vision. <laughs> That's right. But the, but the labels pain, like, did you have to get the 3495? All you could watch <laughs> special. No, no, that's, that, that's why yeah, I, that, I think that's accurate. And also I think publishers used to have this idea and it used to be true that if they sent you to Portland or sent you to San Diego, wherever, then some local newspaper would come and, and interview you or do a you know do a feature right. about you, and that was good. That would sell books. But I think they've all figured out that one, there aren't any more local newspapers, and publishers also know there's only like three things that sell books: right. there's TV, there's John Stewart, there's NPR, there's the New York Times. See, I could see this. I could see this book becoming a movie. I mean, it's it has a cinematic quality to it where you that is that's the vividness of the writing. Yeah, I know. I don't know, but it's it's kind of like. It's kind of like Walter Kern, who, like, I mean, who cares if it ever gets made? Like, Walter, like, every one of Walter Kern's books gets optioned. Yeah, and then, like, they, they ban him from the... Up in the Air was good. Yeah, yeah, it was that a good was, book. That was a good, good movie, too. Yeah. But, no, I, I think that I, I, my goal, for me, the object of being a writer, the object of writing books is just is, is this so they let me do another one. Right. It's like winning a game of ping pong. Right. All you get when you win a game of ping pong is another, another, game, another of game of ping pong. pong. And that's all I want is another, I mean, another game at, of ping pong. Are you at the point with your writing where you just have so much to say, man, that you got to no. get it out there? Or it's just like, I don't want to ever have to work a straight job, and I'm really good at this, so I'll just do this with with discipline and craft and continue to get paid I think for it's it. actually easier to work a straight job. I mean, when I had staff jobs, you know, at time I was. But a, I don't even a, consider that a straight job. Like, like that's true. You didn't. I didn't actually have to show up. No, and, and if you did, you could be any job you can be stoned for. Ninety nine percent of the time isn't a straight job. Isn't a straight job. No. Well, I can't have. A, I could never have a real job. No, no, me neither. I yeah, mean, no, I, that I couldn't do. But I mean, but I got so bad that I don't even like to have to show up anywhere. Like, and probably at Sports Illustrated. Was it hard for you to get up for this? Like, did you wake up like, oh fuck, I gotta go to see Jimmy in Beverly Hills? 
Well, n- no, no, I wasn't. I wasn't stressed about this because I know you, and I knew right, you, right. you know. But sometimes when you have interviews with people who you know you're gonna have to work to right. make it interesting, yeah, it's stressful. That's supposed to ask you about the fraternity story. Is, the that, frater- the is that coming along? I don't know if you're gonna have it for the fall. Okay, because I'm going away. I'm, I'm going away for a few weeks. All right, I gotta well, go away. Right. But but I think it's a good story. Is, yeah, let's not give it away. No, we won't give it away. I was, but anyway, no. So back to the, so back to the, I, 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 you know, a little work talk here. Well, so wait, but I, I wanted to just getting just just showing up. Showing up is too hard, and then the that's such a luxury though to not have to show up. Yeah, but you know, okay. Here's what's stressful. Here's what's super stressful about being a writer is when you have to go do a celebrity profile of somebody who you actually do not care about, an actress or you know Ooh. this feeling, actress or starlet or usually for me, what's it, I get more stressed out with young actresses who or singers who haven't done that much in their lives, but have to be on the cover of magazines because that's what the industry requires. Right. And you have to go and get 2,500 words out of chaperoned lunch with celebrity acts. That's we talk real, about dogs, astrology, and food, and salad. exercise, workout. Yeah, uh, that's really stressful. I find that really, and I do the fair amount of that stuff, right? Which is that celebrity profile, uh, yeah. grind it up because magazines need it. And as a writer, that stuff is is as soul crushing as it is. It pays. It pays, and you know the magazine needs it, so right. they're not going to dick around with you too much. And, and it gets you press. It's just like yeah, but it doesn't have anything to do. It has so little to do with actually writing. No, no, it's, it has nothing to do with the process of writing. No, it is writing. That's what's weird about it. It is the actual thing that right. you do, but you're using it for this weird end of it can't be too interesting because no one wants it to be too interesting. Yeah, yeah, it can't be. Edgy, it can't be can't actually really anything. good because yeah. that's not what this is about. It's just it's sort of this product. Yeah. So it's so it's it's a writer instead of saying like it's I'm, content instead of yeah exploring my own philosophy and intellect or trying to think about the world or figure out ideas about the world all you're trying to do is create a, a product right that you know that that can be put on the cover of a magazine that is filtered through whatever sausage machine yeah, filter whatever that, however they're that, making that it. magazine is trying to position themselves as. those more like those mornings i find like the, the, that i find stressful that like okay i have to sort of and also you can't be a jerk i can't sit there and be like i am with you in terms of being honest and right, right. you have to sort of try to be ingratiating the fake laugh the fake laugh interested in what this 22 year old or 23 year old or 30 year old is saying about life and these people and, are shit for brains like it's so hard it is hard and you have to work it's work it's really hard work yeah. it's it's being a fake friend and accepting someone else's fake friendship for that little period where you're doing it and it's awful and it's hard i find that that is you're lucky you don't have to you don't have to do that anymore no no i, I have to do very little mm-hmm. it's 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 great i mean i have to come to work every day but like i don't have to sit in a room with a I mean, I have to, but it's different though, because I have to sit in a room with a different kind of stupidity on like, on like a whole different level. <laughs> so everyone around here can deal with that stupidity, but that's like, that's like its own. Well, like, there's always another level of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the episode of the Flintstones when Fred and Mr. Slate switch jobs because he thinks Mr. Slate has the greatest job, but then like the, the board is just oh, fucking, you mean down at the, at the, yeah, the, the gravel the, pit the quarry, or wherever. Wow, no, I'm just making connections. I find out here there's a certain genius to stupidity, like the ability to turn off your cynicism, intellectualism and radar for distaste and disgust and just sort of like swim with the salmon mm. and and navigate the world that way like the people that do not that, just out here i mean that's the world to some yeah extent. but especially out here though because like the way people talk about someone will talk about something and be like yeah but the, 
you know, but it sucked. Yeah, in my voice, I'm like, but that's fucking shit. But it was terrible. Yeah, yeah like, like, like every, every movie's like that. That was the worst thing I've ever seen, and I'm dumber because of it. But in your head, you're like, wow, man. But at the same time, like, like your dad was a screenwriter, right? Mm-hmm. It's a miracle. And I say this, the same with the magazine. Like, it's a miracle that a movie gets made. Like a bad movie, like the worst movie you've ever fucking seen in your life, it's a miracle that that movie got made. Just like the level of teamwork and artistry and like just like the mechanism required. Oh, yeah, even, to, well, even making magazines. Yeah. When, I, when I was a magazine editor, I used to yeah, sort of be amazed that no matter what happened, this was Times, so it was weekly. Yeah, that, Jesus that, Christ. That, 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 that No matter what happens, this thing comes out every— The clock never it, stops it, ticking. It, every week this thing comes out, no matter how crappy the stories are that come in, you know, late in the week. Yeah. You know, by Sunday, this thing is being printed that looks sort of like a magazine. You're like, this is pretty good, and you have to triage some shit, and, you know. Oh, yeah, no, you, you, you're miserable when you're editing it, and you think, you know, and you're thinking, you know, God, this, this story is just, you know, and you're hating the writer, you're mad at everyone, you know, because it's, it's not, you know, it's not as good as it should be. But yeah. somehow this, this thing still gets done. The key is just to plow forward. It's yeah. just like you can't stop. You just have yeah. to put, it's like a buffalo chewing through cement. It's mm-hmm. just like you literally have. Everything is like that. Writing a novel is like that. Yeah. Writing a novel is, you know, the, the middle of it always feels bad and weird and gross because it's like building a bridge from one side. How long did it take you to write this? Uh, I began in like 2011, but then I stopped because I did another book in between. Which was, which was that? Which was uh, the, the autobiography of Dr. J. Okay, oh, that's right. Yeah, so I did that in between and then came back to this book. So all together probably took like a year, a year and a half, but three years right. of, of chronology. I can't imagine. I mean, Jesus Christ, a year and a half on just the mental discipline. But I, I do other stuff while I'm doing it. Right. I do magazine stuff. I probably did some pieces for you. I'm always doing stuff kind right. of in, 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 so in between. So you're coming back to it. But just, I like, I mean, that's why I like journalism. I think if you were, if I were only a fiction writer, I, I think it would get pretty pretty sort of solipsistic you're just yeah. sort, of, sort of in your in your space all the time in your own, in your own head yeah that's why they Where, go fucking nuts well that's why journalism is great in that it forces you to engage the world in directly you know whether it's business whether it's politics whether it's show business whatever you're actually forced to engage sometimes which if you're a writer and reclusive by nature right uh is is the, the only way i'm going to engage sometimes is to be forced to because i need to make money yeah to make a living and i think a lot of novelists because most novelists and fiction writers now basically teach like yeah, colleges yeah. go through that mfa track they're they're getting more and more withdrawn from the world and that's why fiction never has politics in it anymore it's like politics are like a are, are like shunned by serious fiction writers yeah, yeah they, it's, it's just this inner monologue now do you do um research like did you go out to fracking sites to mm-hmm. learn the terminology because you're no i think that i got from the internet i think but i went i as part of a story i was working on i was in a, this abandoned excerpt of Las Vegas at some point. I think I read that. And so that's where I got the idea for like, why isn't this just being squatted by people who don't have homes somewhere else? I'm fascinated with that whole, just, you know, another place is, is I went to Fort Myers once for vacation. Don't don't ever go to Fort Myers. I don't even know where Fort Myers is. Florida. It's the subprime capital of America. Is it near Tampa? No, it's near. Because Tampa is one of the most uniquely shitty places in the world. Yeah, Tampa is like a really dirty city. That's where like Dwight Gooden was always getting arrested for like having possession. Dwight Gooden would be like, have like a box of baking soda, a handgun and $14,000. And like no cocaine. Yeah. And (laughs) Daryl Strawberry was always mixed up in there. No, Fort Myers. That's a great part of the unwinding too, is George Packer breaks down why Tampa doesn't have a train system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it because, just keeps sprawling. And because and sprawling. everyone was too stupid to vote for it because some Tea Party lady had convinced them the trains were socialist, that light rail was socialist. Why do people vote against their own self-interest? I mean, that's, that's the problem. What's the matter with Kansas thing? Yeah. And it, and it goes on. But, but then limousine liberals, in theory, have been doing that forever. 
right? Rich, rich liberals are voting against their own self-interest and vote, you know, voting to increase income taxes and so forth. That's true. We can afford it. Yeah. It's like, so voting against your economic self-interest isn't that odd. A, yeah, yeah, it, it, it isn't that odd an impulse, I guess. All right. I think I've taken up enough of your time. We're good, yeah. Carl Terrell Greenfeld, The Subprimes, currently out on hardcover in all your favorite bookstores. Audio CD. Audio, did you do audio book? I didn't do the audio, no. Who would you get your voice? I know, some actor. Which, which, which actor? Some, I, don't, I don't think he was a famous actor. Actually, George Clooney did read the... No, no, I don't know who reads the you audio. You get Rip Taylor. Hello, you're listening to the subprime. This is Rip Taylor. Um, the uh, the, no, I think the, the audio version is good. Kindle version. Awesome. All right, Carl. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. All right.